This is The Rounds Table. Hello, everyone, and welcome back. Uh, thank you for joining us. We have a great show for you today. Our theme today is uh, bent towards primary care. We have none other than Dr. Fraser Pollard, a family physician in Trenton. Fraser, welcome back to the show. It's great to have you here. Thanks for the warm welcome, Karen. So we have two um, very interesting articles to talk to you about today. Fraser is going to talk to us about alternative therapies for knee osteoarthritis. And I'm going to talk to you about uh, symptoms in smokers. But let's lead it off with Fraser's article. Fraser, your article is entitled Comparative Effectiveness of Tai Chi versus Physical Therapy for Knee Osteoarthritis, a Randomized Trial. First author is Chen Chen Wang. It's published in the Annals of Internal Medicine in 2016 on uh, uh, May 17th. Fraser, take us through what is the bottom line for this article? So this is a a single-blinded comparative effectiveness trial with about 200 patients with symptomatic knee osteoarthritis. It showed that a 12-week course of either physiotherapy or Tai Chi does improve their level of pain and functioning at 12, 24, and 52 weeks without a significant difference between those two groups of people. Sounds interesting. I'm looking forward to hearing more about it. Tell us why you chose this article. Like everyone, I I see OA multiple times a day. In an outpatient clinic, they're either there for a primary reason or it's a second or third thing mentioned in an appointment. And then working in the hospital, it's a major um, impediment to the progression of patients on a complex continuing care floor. And from my experience, very little works to give improvements the patients appreciate. And if they do, The results are inconsistent and often fleeting. So information about what we'd consider low-risk therapies with functional benefits are really important for me to know about. Yeah, it sounds like it's uh, common to your practice and uh, and definitely applicable. Fraser, tell us what was the design of the study and where did it take place? So this was a randomized, single-blinded, comparative effectiveness trial. And it took place at Tufts Medical Center in Boston uh, between October 2010 and September 2014. Okay, so single single center study. Who were the patients that they included in this study? The inclusion criteria allowed people that were greater than 40 years old that had significant osteoarthritis, both symptomatic and based on radiographic evidence, and excluded people with significant cardiovascular comorbidities, so cardiac, stroke, recently, or dementia. Okay, so you're sort of functional outpatient community-dwelling individual who has some symptomatic osteoarthritis. What was the intervention that they did? There's two interventions, and there wasn't a placebo or another thing they were comparing to. So they were comparing two interventions head-to-head. One was Tai Chi, and by that I mean two 60-minute sessions per week for 12 weeks, plus 20 minutes of daily practice at home. And then they continued that for a full year with provided homework materials. Then the other group was physiotherapy. These were two 30-minute sessions per week for six weeks. Patients were also encouraged to do exercises at home. And then for the following six weeks, they were instructed to do 30 minutes four times a week for six weeks. So it was pretty intensive. And these people were followed weekly by phone to make sure that they were continuing with the, the care plans they were doing. What were the primary outcomes that they were looking at trying to measure? So the main outcome was a look at a change in the WOMAC score. The WOMAC score is a validated score that looks at pain, specifically arthritis pain, 
and it also looks at function. By pain, we're talking about with movement, without movement, at rest, with stiffness, and with function, we're talking about daily activity, cleaning your house, getting up off the toilet, and it's about 30 questions that takes all that into consideration. And who fills this out? Is it a patient-reported uh, symptom assessment, or is it the physicians make these assessments themselves? Uh, this is a patient-reported one. You can actually just Google this, and they'll uh, and you can do this online yourself. And how frequently did they measure these Womack scales? They did it at initially prior to the study starting, and then they did it at 12, 24, and 52 weeks. So Fraser, take us through what were the main findings in this study? So this study looked at primarily the change in Womack score. So they found that there were significant improvements in the Womack score for pain and function for both Tai Chi and PT, physiotherapy, but they weren't significantly different between the two groups. So the Tai Chi group had a greater than 50% improvement in both the pain and function aspects of the Womack score, and the physiotherapy group also had a greater than 50% improvement in both the pain and function aspects of the Womack score. But when you look at comparing those two groups, there wasn't a significant uh, benefit of Tai Chi versus physiotherapy or vice versa. Basically, they appear to be effective therapies, just not one more superior than the other. Were there any interesting points or observations that you wanted to talk about in this study? Well, I think the one thing that stands out just because we're so used to seeing double blinding is that this study, by necessity, had to be single blinded. It's interesting how they try to address the issue because people come into this with obvious pre-existing beliefs about physiotherapy may be better than Tai Chi or vice versa, depending on your background. So they approach this by educating the patient about what kind of study they'd be in. And they said that both studies had been proven to be equally effective to take away that bias that they may have of one versus the other, which is, it's kind of interesting because it can actually introduce a bit of a bias in itself. Because if you did think that, for example, physiotherapy was gonna be worse than Tai Chi, and then you're told that they're equally effective, but you would have actually had a bigger benefit from physiotherapy. It's drawing you to lean more away from that. It's a tough one to interpret, and any way you, you spin it, there is a bit of a bias that will come out of a single-blinded study. You know, the corollary to that is, though, when, when you're limited by having patients know the intervention group that they're assigned to, as it would be impossible to blind them in this case, that this attempt that they've done to educate the patients is around minimizing this placebo effect but it definitely is an interesting strategy um, in a study design perspective. Okay, so Fraser, I had another question I wanted to ask you. Because these interventions were so intensive in their time requirement and effort, did the patients actually follow through and do them? They did, and at a much higher rate than I would have expected. For Tai Chi, the attendance rate was about 75% and 80% for physical therapy. If you had me guess at that or what number of my patients would attend these regularly, I would say 50 or, or less. So I think that's an important thing to keep into consideration when you, when you recommend these things is to say this is based on you doing it, showing up, and, and committing to it. Yeah, and I think this is a common issue that comes into play when you're doing these types of randomized trials is that you have study coordinators calling patients all the time and making sure they're adherent. 
um, which helps us, you know, to measure the effect of the intervention, but it's less generalizable to general population. Was there anything else that you wanted to highlight for this study today, Fraser? Well, this goes along with that attendance point. And to attend something, you have to be able to access it. And this study was done in Boston at Tufts. There was funding for it. In Ontario, physiotherapy is not as readily accessible. And Tai Chi would definitely be an out-of-pocket cost. Keeping in mind that Ontario physiotherapy is only covered for about six sessions for a single issue for people greater than 65. Um, And osteoarthritis is a chronic long-term issue. You have to think realistically about whether or not you can really apply this to your group of patients. And it might be a patient-by-patient decision. That's an interesting point. Thanks for bringing that up. So speaking of your patients about who to apply this to, who is the typical study patient in this trial? So looking at table one and extrapolating a little bit here, this is a 60-year-old patient, slightly more likely to be a woman who's had arthritis for about eight years and has moderate to uh, severe symptoms. They tend to also be used somebody who's also using Advil or another anti-inflammatory and is on average in that obese range with a BMI of 33. Does that sound like a fairly typical patient who you would see in your practice who would come to you with concerns about their their osteoarthritis of their knee? Yeah, with what I just said, it does. I think the one thing that skews it a little bit is they excluded people with heart and vascular disease, stroke, dementia, and a lot of these people have comorbidities and wouldn't be on things like NSAIDs or I would have taken them off it. So like it confuses a little bit, but I think overall you can generalize it to that group. Great. So what what are your main takeaway points that you want listeners to be able to glean from this important trial? Well, I think the main point is that with good compliance to a regular program of Tai Chi or physiotherapy, patients can expect to improve pain and function as early as three months and up to about a year. But there won't be a significance between the two of them and you can't really recommend one over the other. Good to know that there's at least a couple options that are non-pharmacological that are that are effective though. I think, I think that's important. Thank you, Fraser, for taking us through that article. That was very exciting. So I'm going to talk now about the article that I chose. And, and I actually want to let the listeners know Amol has covered this previously on his show when he was the, um, the director of the rounds table uh, in late May of 2016. But I found it to be such an important article that I wanted to discuss it again. And also, there's been some interesting updates in the literature since the publication of this trial that I want to take you through as we talk about it. So I am covering the article entitled Clinical Significance of Symptoms in Smokers with Preserved Pulmonary Function. Um, The first author is Prescott Woodruff. It was published May 12th, 2016 in the New England Journal of Medicine. So first of all, What's the bottom line for the article? So this observational study of about 2,700 individuals found that in smokers who had preserved lung function and had respiratory symptoms, uh, they had higher rates of respiratory exacerbations, greater activity limitation, and more evidence of airway disease, uh, as assessed by CT, compared to never smokers and maybe even more interestingly, asymptomatic smokers with decreased lung function. And all of this was associated with increased use of respiratory medications, which were not aligned with what our current evidence-based recommendations are. So other than to try and upstage them all, why did you choose this article? 
This article is talking about the prevalence of respiratory symptoms, the things that really patients care about, uh, less so than the things that they can know about but don't feel on a daily basis. And it examines the use of medications that are really off-label in this population. Um, and, and ultimately, as you'll see, it raises questions about the current definition of COPD that we use a PFT to, um, to diagnose, a pulmonary function test. And so I thought it was really, really important and one of, the, one of my favorite articles of the year, actually. It's interesting. I mean, as a family physician, I, I'm definitely guilty of starting people on Spiberger before I have the PFTs just because of their symptoms and wanting to get them started. So it's interesting to see your perspective and in, in it coming in from the opposite direction. Yeah, and, and, and I don't think it's any fault of any physician for trying to help patients with their symptoms, regardless of, uh, you know, formal diagnosis. Sometimes we do it all the time. For sure. Yeah. So what was the overall design of the trial and where did it take place? So this was a multi-center observational study that was uh, conducted in the United States and funded um, by the National Heart, Lung, uh, and Blood Institute. So who were the patients in the study? So they actually actively recruited individuals who were between the ages of 40 and 80 years old who were current or former smokers with at least a 20-pack year history of smoking, regardless of whether they had a diagnosis of COPD or asthma. And then they also uh, recruited a, a separate control group of never smoker, quote unquote, healthy individuals who basically, in other words, didn't have any underlying lung disease or unstable cardiovascular disease. So what, what was the primary outcome they were looking at in the study? So to answer that question, Fraser, I sort of have to take a half step back and just sort of tell you how they're all organized and what, they're, what they were looking at to then dictate their primary outcome in and of itself. So basically, it's imagine it like a two by two kind of table, right? So you, you take patients who are smokers or non-smokers and symptoms or no symptoms. And the symptoms they measure uh, using a patient-led uh, self-assessment scale called the COPD assessment test, or CAT, uh, which is a scale from 0 to 40. Higher scores indicate greater symptom burden. And you measure that uh, on a Q3 monthly basis every three months. It's a validated eight-item question that asks about respiratory symptoms. Um, and it provides a reliable measure of the impact of these symptoms on a patient's health status. So the only other thing you need to know is that CAT scores of greater than 10 in patients with COPD have been suggestive of the need for medication use. If they're symptomatic enough, you should give them medications. So they used that 10 cutoff, uh, how to stratify patients, whether they were symptomatic or asymptomatic. So once you can understand now how they've categorized all these patients, then they looked at the risks of exacerbations uh, and as well as their overall six-minute walk test results, their lung function as assessed by pulmonary function testing, and their imaging findings of chronic airway disease uh, using a high-resolution uh, CAT scan. Lastly, they looked at just the rate of uh, respiratory medication use in these patients and followed them up for a total of two and a half years on average. So there's a lot of work that went into this one, eh? That's pretty clear. So what were the main findings of the study? So there was a 35% absolute difference in the reported respiratory symptoms between smokers and never smokers. You know, that makes sense. You're a smoker, you got a lot more symptoms than people who don't smoke. The symptoms were present in about 50% 
of smokers who had preserved pulmonary function. Um, and you compare that to symptoms that are present in 65% uh, of individuals who would be classified as having mild to moderate COPD. Interestingly, 16% of people who were never smokers also had respiratory symptoms reported. So you can see those differences just in the symptom burden that these patients have. Uh, so Karen, but uh, what about the uh, primary outcome, the rate of uh, respiratory exacerbations? So these were significantly different between groups. In symptomatic smokers, they had an annual rate of 0.3 exacerbations per year. So if you did that over 10 years, you would have three exacerbations over that time frame. But where it becomes interesting is that that rate is 10 times higher uh, than never smokers or the healthy controls who had an annual rate of respiratory exacerbations of 0.03. And then if you compared smokers who were symptomatic with preserved lung function to smokers who were asymptomatic uh, with preserved lung function, uh, there was about a three and a half fold difference between those groups. So as I said, 0.3 respiratory exacerbations per year in the symptomatic preserved lung function group and 0.08 respiratory exacerbations in the asymptomatic preserved lung function group. So ultimately, symptomatic preserved lung function individuals have a fairly significant rate of exacerbations per year compared to the other groups. Going through the study, were there any big observations or interesting points that you want to comment on? Yeah, so there's a few things specifically about the study, and then I want to update you on the literature that's uh, since been published. So among symptomatic uh, smokers, f there was a rate of uh, respiratory medication use of 42% of them used bronchodilators, and 23% of them used uh, inhaled glucocorticoids. So a lot of what we would call off-label use of medications to try to help these patients who are symptomatic. And as a side note, going back to our you know, intro discussion, 43% of smokers who were symptomatic were told by a physician that they had COPD, even though by PFT criteria they don't. And that was compared to 11% of smokers who did not have symptoms who were told they had COPD. So quite interesting about this sort of interpretation of symptoms in the setting of somebody who smokes, albeit they didn't meet criteria for COPD. So I want to tell you about what's, what's come out since this publication. There's, there's really three things that I want to tell you about. So first, uh, there was a study that looked at, again, individuals with preserved lung function. And these would be patients who would report themselves as being asymptomatic. However, what they found is that the exercise capacity in these asymptomatic smoking individuals was significantly lower than healthy controls. So again, some underlying pathophysiology signals there. Now, this brings up to the question about the value of symptom self-assessment to consider, you know, in the context of calling somebody an asymptomatic individual based on these crude symptom scores. And, you know, one of the um, studies that reflects just this concept is that if you looked at patients with this, you know, what we might call preclinical COPD, sort of symptomatic preserved lung function, 48% had a symptom scale of zero. But what had what had ended up happening is that they were actually far more physically inactive compared to their smoking non-COPD peers. Again, the demonstration that symptoms sometimes don't always correlate to exercise capacity, or in this case, their interest in performing any kind of exercise. 
Then the last point was about sort of longer term decline in their lung function. Um, so they looked at a study of smokers who had diagnosis of COPD and others who, who smoked who did not have COPD. And they found that after an acute respiratory exacerbation, individuals with COPD, they had significant declines in their FEV1. But patients who did not have a PFT diagnosis of COPD but were smokers did not see a decline in their FEV1. They're a different entity. So my takeaway, the summary of all of this updated literature in the context of this study, who are these patients that we see who have these symptoms that have preserved lung function? And what do they represent you know, regarding to their future risk and the need for treatments in order to reduce this type of risk or symptoms? So I think we need to start thinking about these patients as a different clinical entity, much like we might say, you know, heart failure with preserved ejection fraction is a different clinical entity than heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. I, I think your last point there is really important, for me at least, because forces me to say, you know what, these inhalers are expensive, these therapies are expensive, you're not doing them any benefit by preventing an exacerbation in terms of preventing their FEV1 from reducing unless they actually have COPD. So making that diagnosis before you actually implement these therapies and go forward with them and having a clean cutoff between these two groups is probably really important. Yeah, and, and you know, I think maybe even more importantly, uh, Fraser, is that we don't really have good evidence around the effect of these medications in these individuals. Like this, this study and the other studies that I talked about aren't looking at treatments for this category of patients with symptoms and preserved lung function. So I think really we need to go back to the research table and study these patients and study the effects of medications so that all of us as physicians can make evidence-based um, informed you know, recommendations around whether they should be using these medications or not because they're so expensive. Yeah, for sure. Okay, so moving on, who, who does the study apply to? Well, the typical patient uh, is a 60-year-old individual. Both male or female were equally represented. They're not obese uh, by design. Their BMI was on average of 28. And they'd smoked for approximately 40 to 45 years. Um, about 40% of them were current smokers who also had primarily symptoms of wheeze. That was their main reported symptom. Well, thank you, Fraser. That was a really um, interesting discussion we've had today. Now let's move on to my favorite part of the show. That's the good stuff segment. Well, this is this goes along with the knee osteoarthritis and the concept that we don't have a lot of good therapies for it other than surgery. And then this was brought up at a talk I was at tonight on pain management, and I found an article about it. So it's t using mesenchymal stem cells for regeneration and for pain management of knee osteoarthritis. So you take some a fat sample, you spin it down, not using gravity like you would with a centrifuge, but different light um, bands, and you separate out the stem cells, and you would inject it into the knee. And uh, when they do these studies, it's mostly done in France and Germany, the US, there's not a lot of this going on. They actually show that, and they're using the Womack score that we were looking at before, that there's a significant improvement in pain. And not only that, they actually see loss of the previous damage to the cartilage and an overall increase in the in the volume of the cartilage in the knee. And this is a one-time injection. So about $3,500, they take it, spin it down, inject it, you leave, and that's your treatment. And uh, within days to weeks, people are, are having significant improvements. So uh, it's in the early stages, It's um, but it's something definitely to look out for because if these therapies work, I, I think 
we'll see it come into our practice really, really quickly. Yeah, I wonder how much a 12-week intensive Tai Chi course costs compared to that. Interesting. What I was reading about this week was what I will call the Rat Brigade, trading Subway bunnies for spice. So I came across this article, and it's more of an anthropological uh, discussion about how the rats that inhabit New York City subways came to be. And it's kind of a cool discussion about how humans... Uh, invariably carry all sorts of different things. Usually we think about carrying diseases uh, when explorers were visiting new lands, but as it also turns out, they carry the rats with them. So rats by nature don't actually like to venture forth all that far, but they hopped on, the brown rat hopped on the ships uh, in the late 1700s as they traversed around the world trading spices and different goods. Uh, and ended up, you know, establishing themselves uh, in New York City to be the subway kings. So it was just a cool way to look at how human exploration, you know, we've done it in the past with disease, as I said, but uh, it also influences one of the most significant infesting varmints in our world to date and all the diseases that those species carry with them as well. So I thought that was interesting. Interesting, yeah. Yeah, Fraser, thank you so much for joining us today on the show. It was a, a very enlightening and intriguing discussion around two very interesting articles. We hope you join us back soon, and uh, we look forward to talking to you then. All right. Thanks a lot for having me, Kieran. The Rounds Table is hosted online by Healthy Debate. You can find us at healthydebate.ca slash theroundstable. Follow us on Twitter at roundstable. Or find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash roundstablepodcast. Thanks for joining us this week. Who knows what the wonderful world of medicine holds for next week.